Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Soundworks Collection interview series. This is Michael Coleman and this week I had the great honor to talk with my friend and mentor Jack Douglas who I've spent a lot of time in the studio with and, and have heard some great stories and shared so many laughs. I really wanted to talk with Jack about how he first got his start in New York and later moved on to working at the historic record plant and some of those late night dicey sessions that he had to deal with early on in his career. And we also talked about what it was like to work with Aerosmith and John Lennon and we shared a lot of laughs and a few stories and I hope you enjoy this talk. Thanks so much, Jack, for sitting down to talk with me. Everything sound good in your headphone? Why do I sound bad? No, I'm just like I don't like the sound of my voice, but well, I don't like the uh, sound of your voice. But I like <laughs> the sound of mine. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've gotten over it. You got, got over it. it when I was seven years old. Why was it seven years old? Because when I was seven years old, I got a tape recorder, <laughs> and then and I heard my voice. So I've heard it all these years. And then there's the, the laugh, and yeah. that, that's always I've been heard there. that. You've heard yeah. that, too. Yeah. All right, great. I've gotten over my face yet, but yeah. <laughs> I'm all right with my voice. All right, so why are you here in the first place? We're here Emeryville, California, Expression College. Why, why are you here? I'm an instructor here at Expression College for Digital Arts. Right. And, and my, my uh, course is, um, is kind of a wrap-up, uh, and... It's the psychology and etiquette of the recording session. So for people who've never been in a studio, how would you describe that? Well, let's put it this way. <laughs> Most of my students think they know what they're doing until they get into the <laughs> studio with me, and then they find out that there's more to it than plugging something in the wall. And Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's the whole how you deal with an artist, how you work as a team, how you have to leave the the ego at the door when right. you when you walk in? How you find out that the you know the most important person in the room is not you, it's yeah. the artist. So all those things they have to deal with. Plus they have to deal with me laughing my way through, <laughs> laughing at them in the back of the room. Yeah. Well, what what have you found was the equivalent for you when when you were in their position? Did you have that? Uh, I was never quite in their position. I, I was in a different in a different way, and that is that my school. Although I went, I went to the very first class of um, of uh, the Institute of Audio Research, which was the first in the country. It was the first audio school in the country. Yeah, and that uh, was in New York, right? Yes. Yeah, it was actually held in a hotel room. They didn't have a formal classroom. Honest to God, it was. Uh, so you had room service and the whole bit. As they used to, we used to order microphones. <laughs> yeah. I would bring them up. Uh, anyway, my real school was, you know, getting into a getting into an actual studio where I worked, and then and then working with, you know, the amazing um, engineers. Uh, you know, when I finally got to be an assistant, and uh, and they would pretty much murder you when you screwed up because yeah. it, it was real. We were dealing at a professional level. Well, this is research we're doing, right? What here? Well, no, at your school, you said it was the na in the yeah, title no, of the no. school is research. The, the Institute of Audio Research. I don't know that was a good name they came up with. It. There were no. What there wasn't like doctors, you know, <laughs> searching for a cure for you know, for a hum. Yeah. You, had, you know, wow, we've come up with a cure for this hum <laughs> at, at the institute. So who were, who were, what was for that? research? What, what were some of the courses? Who were some of the teachers that you had? I know. What you know? There was one teacher. Yeah. Who was that? Uh, I don't remember his name. Oh, really? 
Yeah. It just <laughs> slipped my mind. Just for, It was one instructor. We this had is, one instructor yeah. in our hotel room uh-huh. saying, this is a microphone. Now let's go on a field trip because we're in a hotel room. So yeah. a field trip would be, let's go to a studio and, and, uh, and let's go to a studio and see how, what's going on there. And so there were yeah. so many studios in the Times Square area where the hotel was. Yeah. Now we could go to Bell, we could go to A&R, we could go to Media Sound. And, um, what were those projects that you saw that they were working on? You're talking about 1969, yeah. Michael. I probably saw Edison mm. working. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't remember any specific. You did a session a with Benj- jing- I think Jingle Dates were the okay. ones that were most open to the school. Yeah. Uh, to, you know, as far as allowing uh, all four students to come in. There were only yeah. four of us. Do you, do you, who are some of the other guys? Do you remember? No. No one? I, I'm, I can't remember. Okay. You know, I should, but had I prepared for that question? <laughs> because I, <laughs> I mean, you know, sadly enough, uh, um, I just, I just gave the, the, uh, the speech, a uh, closing speech, uh-huh. or actually the opening speech, because Alec Baldwin gave the closing speech. Okay. At the graduation this year of the Institute of Audio Research. Oh my gosh. And they gave me my diploma, which I never, uh, I never got. Because Why? Well, because I don't think they even had diplomas in the first class. <laughs> this is before the paper press, you're saying. Yeah. And so they, they gave me an, an honorary, although I did, oh. I completed the course, <laughs> all six months of it. But I mean, now it's, I think, two, or two years. So when you finished that up, where did you transition to? I was already in the studio yeah. working as a janitor at yeah. Record Plant. Okay. So I was, you know, I was studying janitorial arts arts at the, at the school and and uh, as well as you know microphone maintenance and yeah. Who was uh, I? I worked I worked my way up over the course of those six months. Not that going to school had any bearing, on, right? But I thought that it would help me to at least get somewhat familiar with. What were your other options if you didn't go there? Do you think? No, no, I was already, I already had the job. No, but no, I mean for for school wise. No, did. there was a RCA Institute. Okay, and uh, that which was the only school for years, and yeah. basically it taught you how to be a TV repairman. Oh. And the only audio part of that course was look at there's a speaker and an amplifier and a television set, <laughs> and you might have to fix it you yeah. know, or replace a tube yeah. in it or something. You know, so it. Uh, you know, RCA Institute was about television. Sure. But it was, it was the only school in yeah. New York. And as a matter of fact, Jay Messina went to RCA Institute. Who you're still and, very close And, you with, know, yeah. yeah and, and the funny thing about Jay was, like, if something went wrong with your TV, he could fix it. <laughs> so, like, he would come make house calls, you know, uh, and fix people's TVs while he was already He's successful. still doing it today. He may, he may be, but, you know, I don't think he, the TVs today are quite different than, <laughs> yeah, the, than the Philco's that uh, we have. <laughs> oh, God. But, uh, uh, so the record plant, how long was that's it? That's school. That was real school. That was real school. So what were the projects coming through during those times? What did you see happening? Well, the first thing I, I, I got to work on, uh, if you call it work, mm. in that I delivered the tape to those sessions was uh, the Woodstock. Oh, nice. Uh, a festival, which was, you know, I got into um, Record Plant in 1969, and they were doing the remote recording of uh, of Woodstock Festival. And so yeah. uh, uh, the artists would come back to Record Plant to fix anything, like a vocal or a mic that crapped out, or maybe just fix up a performance yeah. before that record was released. And so... Um, 
that was the first thing I remember. And then, you know, and then I, I assisted on on various things. I mean, I had to work my way up to assisting, mind you, uh, yeah. from uh, from janitor, which I was really bad at it. I didn't understand that. And that was only temporary. And then I got to be a, uh, um, a general worker, which is yeah. the guy who delivers tapes and cleans up. and does How much time do you think that went for? How long were you in that position? Just a few months. Okay. I mean, I was really moving because I was yeah, I was you so went to interested. For, you yeah. had some... well, I had no bearing on it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, a slight bearing, maybe. Yeah, but um, but really, school was you know being able to go in and hang out in a control room with a, a yeah. Roy Sakala or a, yeah, you know, um, Tom and, Fly or Shellyakis yeah, would I mean, just yeah just show a... you a few things until you got to be an assistant. And then uh, you learned it. You really learned everything. Um, but I remember uh, assisting on on James Gang sessions okay. and Mountain sessions oh, and nice. working with uh, very interesting, you know, Bill Simzik and and. Uh, what do you appreciate from those sessions? What, what What do you still remember about those those days that still is, you know, very applicable to today? Mic placement. Yeah. Yeah, for one thing, but it, you know, it was uh, running a tape machine and you know learning to anticipate and staying ahead of this of everyone in the room because you know you someone had to hold it together. Yeah, you know if everyone was kind of screwy sometimes. And those times is usually what you have the band, an engineer, and who else? It was just the 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 band, the producer. Yeah, the engineer and the assistant. Okay, um, and uh, you know it was. As an assistant, you really became part of the project, and you became relied upon to to really, you know, carry your load. And so, and that that depending on uh, the engineer would would vary. So it, mm. it could be that you just ran the tape machine for some. For others, you set up all the mics. For others, you set up the right mics for them that you knew they liked. Yeah, uh, and you uh, set up the patch bay because you knew yep. which equalizers, which compressors they preferred. And you did everything so that the engineer, who was considered a star, really, okay, would walk into the room and really just get at it. Sit down and start. Yeah. yeah. Now you find that situation again in in uh, in today's um, situation would be that the mixer is the star, and the mixer has an assistant that uh, sets up everything for him, lays in all his samples, yeah. does everything so that. When the mic, when the and I'm doing that the lobster claw thing for quotes, <laughs> yeah. So that the mixer, the mixer, yeah. when he comes in, can sit down and make that mix that he's doing of that artist, yeah, sound like every other artist that he's ever made. Why do you think that shifted? Why <laughs> why has it shifted to this? You know, way and now? make it sound like his yeah. mix. Like, oh, that's his mix. Yeah, that I recognize his samples. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's that's just the way. Um, Do you miss that approach? I mean, or how it was treated? I, I mix the old approach, which yeah. is the band has a personality and you hear it. Yeah, but no one really cares about a band's personality anymore. And you know, an audio. I mean, everything from jazz to to you know, even producers who had a style of of jingles, doing jingles yeah. that was. So today, everything's homogenized in it. And you know the the labels look for making everything sound the same, so that sure. it's compatible and um, 
competitive yeah. is the word they like to use. So we've, well, before we talk about today, yes, what <laughs> is so, today? It's so Where easy. It's so easy to talk about today. Yeah. Well, uh, you mentioned Roy Sakala, and you've told me some great stories about working with him. And obviously, it's, I feel like the people that came through Roy, like you said, Shelly Akis and Jay Messina, and even Jimmy Iovine. That's right. Those guys went on to work on, and you too, went to work on some great projects. So what was it about Roy? That What, what, what did he instill into you guys? I think, first of all, Roy attracted um, a lot of great clients. And then, and then he was the kind of guy who would like pass that client on, on to you because there was only so much work he could do. Yeah. You know, his favorite things, that his pet projects were like doing things with his friends okay. or... Uh, uh, otherwise he would you know he'd get a great client and and within a year you would you'd be you would be doing that you'd be working with that client and you'd be passing it off yeah. to you and then it was all yours i mean sure there's a trust and everything that he kind of sends from you guys yeah 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 plus we we gave him 10 percent. <laughs> this is true yeah not us actually but yeah. the studio the studio paid, wow paid him paid him an additional 10 percent from their coffers because he brought those clients in, even though we were engineering. Incredible. Them. And in, uh -huh. a, in a way, you know, that was, it was a great moneymaker because he could have, he could have 10 sessions a day going. Yeah. And he could only be doing one, but he was getting from, uh, from the studios. Well, he was, did he, he have a name for you guys? Roy Sakala and the something? Yeah, right. He should have. <laughs> but I mean, he was very generous, but yeah. he, you know, he had to trust you that you would do a good job with these clients that he gave you. Yeah. And, and if you screwed it up, then you would lose it. And yeah. you would, but, I mean, you know, Shelly Akis, he, he gave Shelly Akis his breaks, and Jay and myself, yeah. and Jimmy, yeah. Greg Calby, who now owns Sterling, and, I, you know, and the list goes on and on. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, he, and he, we lost him recently. Yeah. Uh, it was very sad. But, uh, um, yeah, you said he was an interesting guy. He had a great sense of humor. Never really wanted to be in the spotlight at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, just like, like I said, his favorite things were to be like working with his wife or, <laughs> you know, or to, be, or to find some funky little band. Like uh, it was a band called Gut Bucket. He, <laughs> well, what kind of music was it? It was R&B and he loved working with this band. It was a guy, what a voice like this. He just loved that. And, and there was a um, band of motherfuckers. <laughs> you can swear it's right yeah and that was um they were all session players but the, they would you know that was roy's little side uh, yeah. project band of motherfuckers bomf oh good was their name okay um and uh there were a lot you know there were I'm great sure players this, in yeah. it yeah so record plant what were <laughs> how long were you there and, and how late did those sessions run oh the, the, how long did they run I mean, uh, there was uh, there were some sessions that I did. I was reminiscing about this just recently to someone. There were there was a client who did a lot of R and B, but he and his partner were pimps. <laughs> and you know, we were in Times Square, and this is in the seventies, and and um, and it was pretty rough out there on the street. It was mm -hmm. so. I would always get stuck doing these dates with this guy. They would be, they would start at eight at night and they would go till the sun came up. Yeah. And the reason why they went to the sun came up is because, <laughs> it's because they were COD dates. They were cash. Oh my gosh. And the owner of the studio used to say to me, 
you you get the cash up front, okay, <laughs> before you do the session. Now these guys were bad news, you know. They were like rough, yeah. And they would come in and in purple suits and hats, with uh-huh. canes and there, and they would come in, and they would put their guns under the under the the tape machine. Oh god! They would put two guns under the tape machine. Yeah. And then they would have some girl singer or something that they liked, you know. Yeah. And they we would do a date. They, you know, they would get some musicians to play that were pretty good. And I was supposed to ask for the cash up front. There's no way yeah. you could ask for how, the cash up front. How old were you then? 23. Okay. There's no way you could ask for the cash up front. You just, you would keep hinting to yeah. them that. And they would say, don't worry, man. Don't worry, man. You'll get uh. paid. And then when the sun came up, yeah. their girls would come in off the street <laughs> with like a load of cash. You'd fall asleep on the couch, basically. No, no, they'd come in off the, from their night of yeah. working, yeah, and and then give the turn the cash over to these two, and pimps, then you get paid, and then they would pay me. So and it's not blood money; it's something else. It's cum money. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. It's yeah, money is on the cum. That's what they'd say to me. Your money's on the cum. Good lord. Oh my. But there was actually come on the money. I Jeez know, Louise. Was, oh, wait a minute. Um, so yeah, that that was. But so those were, dates would go all night. But there were other sessions you did too. There were rock and roll sessions that were fueled by cocaine. You know, that yeah. w- would go on for days. Um, you know, mostly uh, the cocaine was supplied by the labels, who, who would put it in their budget. No uh, way. Oh yeah, and and usually delivered by someone from the label. And the idea was, you know. We'll keep them in there and keep them working fast, and uh, yeah. and this way we'll get the record in a hurry because they'll be all coked <laughs> out of their heads. <laughs> it was um, it was a time not and good, place. yeah, not good. And then you'd have to take a two and all to finally get to sleep. But um, you know, those are the bad old days. Um, so how what what can you take away from your record plant time? I mean, obviously, it's oh, every historic. everything, everything, my yeah. you know. I learned everything in those in those rooms. Um, Did you think that you were going to stay there, or was this just kind of a no, in-betweener? I, no, um, I was staff, and at a very young age, uh, I became a successful engineer. And, and you, you know, when you were an engineer, you were getting anywhere from 15 to 20% of the total price of the, of the session. So, yeah. so you could, you know, at, at a very young age, I was making almost 100000 a year. Wow. And I thought I was on top of the world. Yeah. In, in the early 70s, that's a lot, a lot of, money. of money. Yeah. And Where uh, were you living in, in town there at the time? I moved. I started out in the East Village on 5th between A and B at a $65 a month place. <laughs> <laughs> and I ended up in a, eight rooms on the Upper West Side. Oh, my gosh. You, which uh, and a beautiful place. But yeah. um, And then eventually I bought a house. But, okay. But um, it was Bob Ezrin who who said to me that you should probably be a producer because I was on that cusp of uh, producers were guys like a, like a Phil Spector. Right. Who put, that? you know, it was just changing, who put uh, the right elements together. You got an arranger, a song, an artist, you got a hot engineer, yeah. a good studio. You put all that together. And, full package, yeah. Yeah, and something came of it and you supervised the whole thing. And then, you know, came along guys like Ezrin, mm-hmm. who were musicians, arrangers. The only thing, uh, the only trick he didn't have in his bag was that he wasn't an engineer. Okay. Uh, following him were guys who were engineers, 
former musicians, arrangers, and people who could supervise. And that was what I was doing. Yeah. You know, even with my some of my clients who were the old school producers, I would like go out and work on arrangements with them. You know, I was just the engineer, but I'd be working it and uh, and just thinking, well, I'll just do what I can to make <laughs> this thing happen. Yeah. But but, but uh, Bob Ezrin said you should just produce. Yeah. You know, you 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 know. I said, well, I'm not really making a good living here uh, as an engineer. Yeah. He said, but you could do better, and so. Uh, he took me kind of under his wing. I mean, I already knew what I was doing, but yeah. he was going to show me more about it. And I went up, and he said, you'll open out of town. With the, and so I went to Canada and produced my first uh, record, which was a Crowbar. <laughs> in, and the record went um, gold and platinum in Canada. It was never released in the U.S. Okay. And, and uh, you know, I got a good feel for how, you know, for producing and I had watched other producers that I really admired, like a, like a Simzik. Yeah. Uh, and saw how it worked and, uh, um, you know, would steal from those guys, how they, you know, all the good points. Yeah. Um, well, and the thing that we're Even missing- Kit Lambert, who was oh, okay. producing The Who, yep. there was a certain dramatic thing that he had going on that inspired The Who to do what they were doing. And so... Although he was not a technician, uh, he was the son of a of a famous conductor in London, so he had the, he was musical. But uh, there were a lot of things I stole from Kit on the dramatic side. Dude. Yeah, and, and you know something I was going to say is something that we're to- the element we're missing is that you're also a musician. You're a bass player. That's that's right. But not Gu- only a guitar player too. And a guitar player. Uh, and there were some pretty incredible projects that you worked on before. I guess you got to the engineering kind of step in your life. Oh, you mean as a player? As a player, yeah. Oh, yeah. We were, I mean, we were just talking yesterday about some sessions you were doing down in Florida. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, with uh, well, I went down playing playing bass with the Angels. Uh, ended up playing with Wayne Cochran for a while, and the Wayne yeah. Cochran and the CC Riders at the 79th Street Causeway was replaced by Jocko Pastores. Yeah. Uh, so Jocko took my gig, but I went on. Then I left played in a band that was uh, that traveled all over the place and was turned out to be um, uh, Paul Schaefer's favorite band when he was a kid uh, then went on to play bass with Chuck Berry and and I mean just uh, you know and was a recording artist and did you know quite a bit as an artist um, so I was uh, you know frequently on the other side of the glass as an artist very frequently I was produced by I was signed to major labels, uh, sometimes two at a time, yeah. uh, and uh, and uh, played with a lot of uh, people and did a lot of dates and sessions. And you even had a, a great opportunity as a songwriter for Kennedy. I wrote campaign songs for Robert Kennedy, yeah. yeah. What do you remember from, I guess, being a songwriter and a musician, did you, were you striving to to be a career musician, to be a recording artist, or did you already know I, that you I, wanted to transition out? No, no, uh, I knew that I wanted to do something in the in the record business, yeah. you know, not not as a businessman, but as potentially a uh, potentially a producer. Okay. Although it seemed like a dream, um, and or a successful uh, musician, but mm-hmm. um, you know, as long as I was in play, doing something in the industry, I was you know I was happy uh, that that the opportunity came along for me to to do a remix of a record that I was a part of, um, 
is the thing that turned it for me. You know, I, when I got that opportunity, I became more attracted to, uh, to that amount of control you had as yeah. a, as a, an engineer or a producer. But, uh, um, but after opening out of town, like I said, with crowbar and under, under Bob's tutelage, um, then uh, Bob uh, handed Alice Cooper over to me. I was had been engineering yeah. Alice, and I had a good relationship with Vincent and with the band, and uh, and and that's what I you know went on to produce. And then because of my relationship with the New York Dolls, which I had engineered and almost produced in mm. a sense, um, the first record, the uh, the management of the New York Dolls had a uh, what they called their baby band, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and that was Aerosmith, and they gave me that as a kind of reward. Uh, although it went through Ezrin first, and then Ezrin said, "You know, this is definitely for Jack." Yeah, and so uh, you know, then I was off and running. I mean, I was starting to have hits out of the. I mean, we're, we're talking about some monumental, huge albums, and at the time. I think obviously you're seasoned. You're now in a producer role. Yeah. Did you feel that? Did, did you have a sense of the impact of these albums? That how they would lay kind of the foundation for the rest of your no, career? None at all. Yeah. No, none. When did you gain? I mean, perspective, you know, you have think? to. I was doing. I was producing things that were like right off the wall. I mean, I was producing Shana Na. Yeah. I was producing. I was co-producing uh, Allen Ginsberg with mm. Bob Dylan. Um, you know, just all I could think of was this um, is work to work, you know, yeah. to do it. And, yeah. and, uh, no, I didn't think, sure. I, 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 you know, I looked forward to getting a copy of billboard to see how successful my stuff was doing. But, you know, you know, the, I mean, I was not, the press was never particularly fond of mm-hmm. anything I did, you know, on occasion they, they, um, I mean, like Toys in the Attic got like a, the worst review ever in Rolling Stone. They just said it was a mess. Yeah. You know, I mean, I clearly thought that it wasn't. Been. Well, what is it about? Because all these albums are classic rock albums that come out of this era that people hold to be like just the, the foundation of American music. I mean, there's there's a, a sound and a statement. Well, that American rock and roll. American rock and roll, right. Well, I mean, before that, there was great stuff. Yeah, you know that you had a whole, you had a whole thing being laid down in the fifties and sixties. It was just amazing. I just fed off that. Yeah, I mean, that was my foundation. Fifties rock. What what bands were you hoping that you could replicate? One of the projects that you were working on was was there something that you carried from? Mm. Yeah, you know, for feel, it would always be a. a uh, uh, Gene Vincent or, or, or Buddy Holly or, yeah. or the Everly Brothers for for feel, you know, for authenticity. Yeah, I, I, you know, I always wanted that for production value. Uh, I, you know, there were so many. Procol Harum was mm. probably the one that, uh, that influenced me most production wise. Yeah. What, what about some of the stuff that was coming up across the water? Was that hitting That's, you as well? That's what I mean. Procol Harum was English. Yeah. Oh, I mean, that's all. That's all for production value. I only yeah. listen to, um, you know, Beatles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Procol Harum, The Stones. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I mean, there was no way I felt I could get close to what Procol Harum was doing. In my fantasy, I would make a record <laughs> that sounded like a Beatle record. I am. Uh, this is something I'm still trying to do. Yeah. You you know that stuff is just. It, it, 
it was just such magic, the sounds of uh, those Beatle records, yeah. particularly from uh, from uh, Rubber Soul on. Mm. It's just uh, it's just incredible. And they did things. It's almost like whatever I do in the studio, I feel like, oh, it's already been done. Yeah. They did it, they some, did it. Yeah, yeah. in some shape or form. Uh, so the, though, you know, I loved... I loved um, that production and and the sound of those records. I felt I couldn't, you know, I didn't even have the tools to get close to that. But I, I would, I would, you know, look at Procol Harum and say that I can, I can get close to that. Yeah, that. I'm going to aim that way. <laughs> yeah, you know. So what happened when Aerosmith lands in your lap? What what were your thoughts when you first met them and and you? You guys are in a room and you start talking about music. Well, the first thing uh, we found out was that we were all yardbirds, okay. fa- freaks, yeah, and that freaks, we love yeah. blues and uh, and we love guitars and we talked about vintage guitars and and we were very uh, you know we, we were sensitive to what kind of amp was being used for what kind of sound and and um, uh, what kind of drums, the bass, what kind of strings, all of those things. Uh, you know, I had in common with each and every member of that band. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and also we were cut from the same cloth. We were kind of, you know, rough uh, street, mm-hmm. a product of a rough street life. Yeah. Except for maybe Tom. Yeah, sure. Everybody else had <laughs> that edge to them, you know. Um, you know. Tom, just very polite and, but you know, super interested in, in music in particular. And... Um, and not so much in technology, but yeah. but uh, the other guys were like, you know, Joey was an R and B head, and yeah. and it was all about laying it down like that. And um, uh, Brad was all about that sound, getting that sound, looking for it. So was Joe. And um, you know, what can you say about Stephen? You're Stephen, an amazing <laughs> voice. Yeah, I uh, and and I remember. The, they had already done their first album. And I remember making that the change from the sound that he used on the first album. It sounds like Kermit the Frog. <laughs> yeah, he had this thing going, and he <laughs> thought it was cool. Yeah. And then uh, I said, you know, we start morphing into his real voice, which was dynamite, amazing. I and I remember getting that. death threats from, oh. yeah, yeah, we, we, we went looking for stuff. And, yeah. And getting, what did you do to Stephen's voice? What the, that's not Stephen singing. What the hell? Yeah, but um, that was, he was a man of m- many voices. Very powerful. Yeah. So so when you guys were arranging those sessions, I mean, I, 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 we don't need to go into like details of liner notes, but what did you, how did you want to treat them? Because they were a new band to you and this is their first album, but they also were coming in off the road of touring or, or playing and, and having a presence already. I mean, they had a they had a similar reputation in New England. Yeah, sure. But it, they didn't really hit the road until after. Uh, I mean, hit the road seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Until after that first album, Get Your Wings, and then um, then they hit the road between Get the Get Your Wings and Toys in the Attic, and then after Toys in the Attic. Uh, you know, then the sales of bo- both of their f- the first two albums went up through the roof. Dream On became a hit. Walk This Way became a hit. Sweet Emotion. Became- yeah. Uh, both records were getting airplay. So, you know, it, it, when I first met them, they were playing high schools. Right. 
and some minor uh, opening for you know a few acts, smaller clubs or just well some like ve- some large venues yeah. in, in in New England, but. Uh, um, yeah, but when they came into the studio, what was your sense of them? Did they have a sense of the recording environment? Did you feel like no, no, to... none whatsoever. So they're pretty green. They were green, yeah. Yeah, they may believe they weren't, but <laughs> but they were. Yeah. But that was fine because you know I was green too. So yeah. the thing of, that we all got to do was to um, to experiment and explore together, which was really cool. You know, they let me do things because they trusted me and and uh, and I let them do things because they were new and they had an edge on everything. What was it that that made the in your mind that that album what it is in terms of the music ship the which music one ship. toys in the well, attic toys, yeah. is the, that's the, the yeah that between between um between get your wings and toys that's they did their first real hardcore touring like Mm-hmm. you know 300 and something days out of the year and they came back as a you know as the same personality but as players they were so much better mm-hmm. they were really they were really had been seasoned over that year as players yeah and um and they had a lot of good ideas and we were allowed to have really really long pre-production periods and um which we needed because mm-hmm. they came back with riffs more than than they did with songs yeah so we were able to uh, complete the the vision in the in pre-production yeah. and then take it in i've been really fortunate that you've introduced me to them but then also i've allowed to see that writing process and the collaboration that you have with them was that the same way that you guys worked then has it been pretty consistent all throughout pretty yeah this collaboration absolutely even the even the last record yeah getting everyone in a room absolutely and working it out finding it yeah. You know, like, uh, you know, you see the guys, their their lights go off when they hear something that really works. And so one guy turns it over to the other. He adds something. Then more lights go off like, whoa, this is cool. And then Stephen puts his, you know, 50 cents in. And then mm-hmm. and then it t- rolls around some more and it keeps going and going and going until we come up with something. But, uh, it's you know, we're lucky. We were lucky to have that kind of time in the in the, both Columbia Records and um, and Lieber Krebs allowed us to to spend months in yeah. pre-production for you with those with 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 those sessions with the time that you would have were you able to kind of get into a groove in the sense of coming back you know going six seven days a week or whatever and and have and just get into a rhythm with them or oh yeah of course taking breaks sure we had a, we had a, a, an absolute routine i mean joey kramer and i in the morning would go to would go to the gym yeah then i'd go back to the hotel tom hamilton would pick me up he would have a copy of the new york times he would hand it to me and we i'd read him the new york times yeah and then we get to the studio we would have uh it was lunchtime and we'd have some lunch. Then we would have a couple of laughs, and then we would go to work until midnight. Yeah, you know, and eat there, and uh, and that was that was the pre-production period. That's the way it was. I and think, just, and, and the reason why I was asking is because I feel like there's something that's the value of getting in this uh, bubble and creating a, having a creative space where the focus is so much on the music, and I think there's an element of passion that comes out which you can't get if obviously. I guess, you know, you put breaks in between or, the, you know, that you're the communication with everyone is, is, 
you know, in a different, you know, more of like what happens today where it's all broken yeah. apart and segmented. Well, well you, you know, I mean, there's, look, at, there's different ways to achieve success. Yeah. Um, I, I'm in, uh, in every, in a, every venture, you know, but, uh, that worked for us. Yeah. And, um, you know, today, you know, people go in, they cut a drum track and then they lay something else on it or they just make a drum track and then they lay, that's a different, it's a different world. And we, we didn't have those tools. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you right now that Stephen would love to do that and probably will when he does his solo record. We'll do, you know, he'll go out in a completely different way and, and, uh, and not in the way that we, that we did. And if I do Joe's solo album, uh, Joe's the kind of guy who likes he feels comfortable with working in that in that environment where mm -hmm. you, you know, you you uh, you work it up, you get a recording of it, and then you you know you you uh, and then you, you you hone the the little things that could happen, and then you move on, make a master of it, all in the same room uh, with players he likes to work with, whether they're in the band or guys that are friends of his. But Stephen will go about it in a different way. Yeah, he looks to make a you know like a a very modern pop record yeah L looking back on those those first albums with aerosmith <laughs> how would you describe the time the transition of, of working on big albums that had a, that were huge splashes what did that do for you with exposure to new artists and then transitioning you know, uh, you know i i can't tell you because i was always so busy yeah um I try. I tried every time I went to move to onto another record. I tried to make it not anything like the record I had done before it. So if I moved from an Aerosmith to a Patti Smith, yeah, it, you know that wasn't going to be a big change. And then from a Patti Smith to a Cheap Trick, that was did people be. want that? Always they went to you and said, "We want." No, no, what you did. we. We. I would always get. Yeah. Give you know, give me Aerosmith. Or, yeah. You know, and and uh, that's you know I didn't want to do that. Yeah. I mean as because you get pigeonholed exactly yeah so i never got pigeonholed and i would be able to do graham parker and then the knack and then you know super tramp or whatever i wasn't um because i had done lennon i would be attractive uh, you know super tramp would be attracted to yeah. me not because i did aerosmith you know um and and uh and lennon was attracted to me for completely different reasons that had nothing to do with any of my work, but just uh, more about uh, who I was as for, yeah. as with him, you know. So being such a big Beatles fan, what, where was your headspace when John wanted to work with you? What, what were your thoughts about no, that? No, no, well, I was surprised. Yeah. Because he could work with any producer he right. wanted to, and, yeah. he had been, and he hadn't worked in years. Um, working with him was not something that shook me up. Because I had known him for some years by mm -hmm. then, by the time we I produced him, um, and I knew Yoko very well, and I just knew the whole, I knew that scene. Of, you know, um, working with him was more about trust, okay, than it was about anything else. Uh, you know, I mean, you, there was a certain you you had to be at least a good producer. You didn't have to be. I didn't have to be George Martin. Yeah. Um, but I think there's something because you knew him before. It, you weren't coming in just trying to get each other from. from this, no, I had no yeah. agenda. I never had an agenda yeah. with him. It was just about making good, making good on what his vision was, which was, you know, I knew I was going to get some crap for because he came to me with. Hmm. 
He said, we're not going to make a rock record, okay? <laughs> Let's get that straight. <laughs> yeah. I know you're a rock producer, but, the, but I know you're another kind of producer, too. We're not going to make a rock record, and we're, you're going to get hell for it because yeah. everyone wants to hear Come Together, mm. and we're going to make a record about a, you know, a, a, a man in, facing the second half of his life, you know, a, man, a middle-aged man settling down who just had been through the rock wars and was now entering another phase of his life. So it's, you know, working with studio musicians, not a band. Yeah. And even when I brought, because I couldn't resist it, <laughs> and brought in Cheap Trick to cut some tracks with <laughs> yeah, him, yeah. he loved it. Yeah. But then, he, you know, both he and Yoko pointed out that, listen, this stuff is great that we cut with Cheap Trick, but it is... It's, it doesn't represent what is going to be on this record. This mm. is a, it's supposed to be mellow, smooth. Yeah, different different space, different. Yeah. So what happened to that material? It was released. Yeah. I mean, we we recut those songs by playing the cheap trick versions into the studio guys' headphones and letting okay. them play along with it, so that we could get the feel that uh, Rick Nielsen and John worked up live in the studio, which was really quite good. And it was a blast. We had so much fun. <laughs> but uh, um, but then adding their kind of, their their smoothness to it. Yeah. And then, of course, when it came out, the critics were like, wow, what, what did you guys do? And it was supposed to be, John Lennon's supposed to be a rock and roller. This is like a, like an adult contemporary, <laughs> which if John read that, made him light up that's exactly right what you're after yeah that's what we're about here yeah. that's what this is that's where i am so anyway um i mean double double fantasy to a lot of people is a is a special album and obviously special for you because of the opportunity and just the experiences you had with john and yoko do you feel looking back on now and i mean this is just my own thoughts would you change anyway no no nothing yeah not a thing well, you know, I had the opportunity to make all the changes I want, mm -hmm. I wanted in the mix when we did the stripped down mm -hmm. okay. version yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But all, all I wanted to do on that was expose to the listener how good that band was. Mm -hmm. So you hear just the basic tracks. I mean, they're just incredible musicians. You hear those basic tracks and you hear and and how and how incredibly talented John was. And so you hear mostly his live vocals with no doubling and, and uh, not any effect on them, just very dry. It's mostly what, what you're hearing is the, what happened yeah. um, during the recording, what it sounded like to me to be there listening to John singing these songs with um, this band. Yeah. And so that's, that's what that stripped down uh, version of Double Fantasy is, which I think is is very good. Yeah. Um, but it gives you a different perspective. Hope. Oh, oh. Hold on. Um, great. So let's see. Uh, with this album, Double Fantasy, coming out, as album of the year. Okay. How do I feel about the success of winning a Grammy this year? Let's let's not talk about that. Okay. Because because everything that happened then the success the grammy was all uh, um shadowed yeah by losing him so it was not there was n nothing was right about that success it, it was all off there was um 
No, there was there was a, a black cloud over everything. Yeah. Um, you know, it took me years before I could even go listen to the record. Years and years, maybe a decade. Yeah. But um, were you able? Did you go in to continue working after that period? I did. Yeah. In fact, I worked. I booked myself sometimes two projects at a time just to keep your head somewhere else. Yeah, but it didn't work out too well because yeah. I, you know. I was not in. Uh, I was not in good shape. Yeah. So, at what point could you, at least, can think about working? What was the project? I took. Then? I took. Um, I took many years off. Mm-hmm. I, I went back to work with Supertramp. Okay. And the in the. I mean, I worked through the eighties. Yeah. You know, on on and off on many projects: Aerosmith, The Knack. Graham Parker, yeah, t- bunches of things, um, but my head was g- going further and further out of it. Did you want it? Continue and I working? actually took, I actually took three or four years off. Did nothing. Okay, nothing, just yeah. uh, nothing at all. And then went back to work. When I went uh, back to work with Supertramp in the early nineties, yeah, and then just went back to work and yeah, uh, like one after the other again, and happily. Yeah, but it took a while to uh, to clear my head from uh, from um, that experience and and um, and the drugs uh, I took to uh, to medicate mm. those feelings that I had. Um, and when I finally cleared my head, um, I cl- I cleared it uh, I cleared it for good. You know, yeah. as far as you know, the drugs or alcohol or right. I mean, it's, it's it's as it's as close as losing a, a family member. I imagine. Pro, you know, I can't say that because the only family members I've lost are my parents, which which is acceptable because you know you lose your parents. Right. But um, it was like losing a friend. Yeah. Okay. For you now. Oh gosh, I mean, that's between the the mid '80s through now. I mean, there's just been a handfuls of of projects and you've continued to keep yourself busy and work on amazing projects guys who get into music production this is this is our outlet for creativity we have to express ourselves some way and this is what we enjoy this is where we enjoy the collaboration and the, the headspace we'd be in you, I, I guess you've since gone on and worked on some film projects you've gone into well, other spaces you, i mean we have to go into other spaces now because um the business has changed we have to change with it you know, an old, what you would consider an old school producer like me. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't sit in a room and make tracks for people. I'm not, um, I'm not the vocal specialist. Yeah, I'm not a mixer. I do all those things except make tracks. <laughs> yeah, but you know, like I, I've been recording vocals for a gazillion years. I've been mixing for a gazillion years, but now apparently there are specialists. Who just do that? So, uh, and I'll leave that world to the specialist. Yeah, and I'll make I'll make records with people who want to make records where from start to finish or from start to mix, up to the mix point. You know, they want me to come in and work on arrangements with them and, and this and that and everything. There's very few of those left. Uh, but there's something that you bring to the table which people still hold. To be important, oh, maybe. <laughs> I don't <laughs> Come know. On. I mean, no, I'm still working. Yeah, but, but uh, um, 
you know, it's, I'm not working one project after another, sure. after another, and it's just a different world. Yeah. People, you don't even make albums anymore. Right. You know, rarely, who buys an album? It's uh, so, and that's all fine because uh, it gave me a chance to move around in this business, and that is what I'm enjoying doing. Up, you know, um, uh, I I have uh, I'm scoring film. Uh, I'm uh, you know I always wanted to compose. Yeah, I I enjoy that. Um, I uh, I'm involved uh, right now in a theatrical play which i don't want to give you the details of but it, it's uh that's new for me and it's very cool as a producer um writing um and uh and i'm you know i'm starting to do per, um, again here's the lobster clause quotes yeah. personal appearances which oh, okay. is uh, i've signed with a company that uh w- was handling uh sports stars mm-hmm. up to this point and now um for a couple of bucks, I'll have lunch with you and you know talk about things that we're talking yeah. about right now, um, or whatever they want me to do. You know, within reason. <laughs> within you know, reason. Within reason. Yeah. Um, you know, I can speak about a lot of things because I have a lot of experience about a lot of. By the way, yeah. The the instructor uh-huh. at the Institute for Audio Research, but yeah, you know, I wasn't prepared for that. Was <laughs> Al Grundy. Ah. Uh. Al, just edit this. Oh, it was Al Grundy. Just edit that back into where you asked me, and I Maybe. went blank. But uh, <laughs> it's, just, it's just like Al is long past, gotta, and Al the, just came to me the like the hard drive spinning. Has you got know, it. he came to me and he said, "Fuck, don't you remember me, yeah. Al Grundy or <laughs> Al Grundy?" And so yeah, it was Al Grundy. Yeah, and, all right. So uh, the thing I can, you know, I'm I'm going in a lot of different directions, both as we speak, and in my <laughs> professional life, uh, you know, and and it's fun. Um, yeah. And of course, I'm teaching. Yeah. Uh, and I have, I have, um, you know, I have my kids. My, you know, I'm really excited about what my kids do. My son was nominated for a Grammy this year. My other son uh, has got a very very successful. Uh, studio business and hip-hop uh company going in los angeles my daughter is now the uh the uh editor-in-chief of art news which is the oldest and yeah uh and most established art magazine in the world you know i have a blast just watching watching them and and uh and looking forward to uh, going out to you know to the hamptons or montauk for <laughs> for the most of the month of September with the, you know, all of them join me. My, my daughter's about to have a, uh, present me with my first grandchild in a few weeks. Everything and, worked out. Yeah. And my, uh, my son's, the oldest son's getting married and it looks like the next guy maybe coming down the line is getting pretty serious. You must've done something right. Oh, yeah. They're all, <laughs> you know, it was, there was plenty of bumps along the way, but you know, uh, with a little faith uh, in yeah. in in people, yeah, things turn out okay. Well, the thing I was gonna note, except is, for with you. Well, <laughs> I had high hopes for high hopes I for know. you, Michael. Bastard, Michael, you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, here's the thing is that I, I've had the fortune of spending a lot of time with you and, and Jay Messina and some other guys mm-hmm. in the studio. And there's something that I really appreciate about the environment and the mood that you create. It's it's a creative space, but it's also, it can be fun and, and also serious all at the same time. This is true. And this is like, because that's what life is. You know, if you're right. going to spend a lot of time in a studio with someone and you do. Yeah. There's no sense in putting on any airs because it'll just give you ulcers. You have to, you have to be who you are yeah. in the studio. And the studio is a joyful, playful place. And so to go in there and think that you're a brain surgeon or a rock scientist is really <laughs> stupid. Yeah. You want to go in and have fun. And that, and that uh, feeling can be contagious and the artist can have fun and, and it makes for a, a healthy environment for... Uh, um, make for creativity. I think that's true with all, all the artists that you look at the roster of people you've worked with. I think there's a similarity there of how people approach their art. It's, a, Pl- it's a, with some playfulness. Yeah, with some playfulness. Yeah, it's important. Yeah, um, you know, if I, if I were a film director, it might be different, but I doubt. I I think I would be the same on a set as uh, <laughs> as, as I am in the studio. It's just a, It's just. You know, life's too short to be miserable. Yeah. So I want to have fun, you know, as much as I can. I think that's the thing when people are like, oh, what's the magic sauce? There is no magic sauce. It's evidently you and the energy you you bring into the room in the process, which is then infused into the music. That's exactly right. Right? Yeah. And with that, we should close this. Perfect. Because I have to get back to my students who are probably wondering, what the hell happened to that guy? I thought he was interested in us. (laughs) Well, thank you, Jack. It was a lot of fun. Michael, always a pleasure. (laughs) 